but Matthew chapter number 3 and verse number 1, and uh, I'll read. You can follow along in your copy of the scripture. Matthew 3, verse number 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we dive into the scripture this morning. Ask him to illuminate the word in our hearts and our minds today. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you gratefully. We thank you that we can approach you. Even that last song we sang, that, that we have a strong and perfect plea, not because of us, but because of our great high priest. As you look at us, you see Christ's perfect righteousness. Because of that, oh Lord, we have an audience before the king. Not just the king uh, in Jerusalem, not just the king in our hearts, but the king, the maker of all creation, Lord. And for that, we are eternally grateful. As we come to the scripture this morning, oh God, open our hearts, open our minds. May the spirit illuminate these words to us that we can grow in our faith and our love and understanding for the word, yes, but for you. For you, O oh God, for you, Jesus, for you, Holy Spirit, may we worship and adore you today. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Have you ever waited for a phone call or maybe a letter uh, or a package? Um, when I was a kid, it was still time, at least in my family, where uh, we were kind of making the shift from ordering out of a catalog to just ordering things online. Uh, of course, I tended to prefer to order things online, uh, but my parents, you know, they still had the, the Sears catalog or the JCPenney catalog, and uh, they would find something they needed, a pair of shoes, a pair of pants, whatever it might be, and a phone call would be, would be placed into the order center, and uh, then a shirt or whatever they had ordered would be shipped to our house. And then after that, that started the waiting game, right? The waiting game. Uh, sometimes it took a few days, Sometimes it took a few weeks, whatever it might have been. 
Now, in our impatience, mostly, and in our fast-moving society today, uh, we now make orders and we look for guaranteed delivery dates. Uh, I'm guilty of this. And if it doesn't get there by that day, we get frustrated and upset. Um, in some places, orders can be made and that item can be brought to your house the very same day. So maybe waiting isn't our strong suit anymore. Uh, I remember when Lizzie and I were dating, and we lived about 600 miles apart, me in Groton, Vermont, she in Richmond, Virginia. So a phone call every evening was our usual form of communication. And I remember waiting for the phone to ring. I didn't have a cell phone or cell service at my house, so she would call our, our home phone, and I would be waiting for the phone to ring, knowing that when it did ring, it was going to be her, and I also didn't want anyone else to answer it, uh, so I was, I was ready for that phone call. I was waiting for it. Well, as we look at our passage today, we're looking at the culmination of a lot of waiting in the history of Israel. In the birth of Jesus, the wait for the coming Messiah was over. It was recognized by a very few at first, but the time of waiting had drawn to a close. But as we come to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew introduces us to another character on the scene, and that is John the Baptist, another one who was promised and prophesied about, and with every promise, well, there is waiting, isn't there? At the end of the Old Testament, the very last book in our Old Testament canon is the prophet Malachi, and the last recorded prophecy in the Old Testament reads this way, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Or some translations read simply, a curse. That was the last that God's people heard from the prophets for a time period of around 400 years years. In other words, the waiting game was on. Uh, they were waiting for that day of the Lord, the, the coming time of promised judgment and rulership of God. And with that waiting, they were given a sign. Malachi, speaking the Lord's word, says that Elijah the prophet would come to inaugurate the coming of the Lord. As we come to the New Testament, uh, we find that after this period of waiting, God had not forgotten about this promise. If we cross over to the book of Luke for just a moment and look at chapter number 1, beginning in verse 13, we read this. Uh, this is the angel speaking to Zechariah. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The angel's promise is that this John, born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, 
would fulfill that prophecy about Elijah coming in Malachi chapter 4. That John would be an incredible man, filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the womb. And he would go in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's what the angel said. Now, this was a big promise. People had been looking back to that promise in Malachi now for nearly 400 years. 400 years of silence, 400 years of waiting, anticipating. Now, many, no doubt, had sort of fallen off the bandwagon of that waiting, given up hope that there would ever be a word from God again through his prophets. Many, as we will see in our passage today, had really stopped looking for God, and they had kind of focused in on their religion instead, getting it down to a science. Yet, God, as we see in Scripture, as we experience in our own lives as well, God is a God who always keeps his promises. And even after nearly 400 years, this promise was kept. And if we had any question about this, Jesus himself confirmed that the coming of John the Baptist was a fulfillment of that prophecy when he spoke about him later in the book of Matthew. Uh, Whenever we interpret scripture, we can't go wrong when we copy Jesus' interpretation. And this is what he said. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He is Elijah who is to come. And John the Baptist did come. He came preparing the way for Jesus the King. He came proclaiming that the kingdom of God was near. In doing so, he was pointing to Jesus, uh, pointing to God and saying, God is the king, and that is something that all of you must come to terms with. And that's what we can draw from John's ministry even today. He was pointing upward to something bigger, more significant than even himself. He was pointing to God himself as ruler and king. And he preached repentance for the kingdom has drawn near. So we see kind of the big idea for today is this. John's ministry shows us that each of us must personally come to terms with the kingship of God. We're going to see a few different things as we look through this passage. If you have your outline handout from the bulletin, uh, you'll see a, a message of preparation, a response of recognition, a word against assumption, and then lastly, a promise and a warning. Uh, I couldn't find something that fit with the cadence on that last point, so sorry, you'll have to fire me. Uh, We'll start first with a a message of preparation, a message of preparation. Going back to verse number one, uh, we start off, in those days, in those days. Uh, We've skipped now ahead in the timeline of Matthew's gospel from what we can tell, the ministry of John the Baptist probably took place around A.D. 26, somewhere around there. He is around 30 years old. He's a little bit older than his cousin Jesus by perhaps a matter of months. Uh, He was called the Baptist, uh, not because he was a member of Ira Baptist Church, sorry. He was called the Baptist because he was a baptizer. That's what he was known as, baptizing people in the Jordan River. His parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, knew the significance of his life and his role. And he was raised in a particular way because of that, according to the instruction by the angel that told of his birth. 
and he starts his ministry in the wilderness of Judea. Now, when we think of wilderness, we might think of terms of a vast forest or uncharted territory. Uh, John, however, was in the wilderness east of the Jordan River, and he was most likely near the places where those coming from the east would cross over and those coming from the west would cross over. It was kind of a trafficked place, but it was still desolate and wilderness, uh, kind of a desert place. Those traveling through that place would see him and hear his preaching, and his main message was simple. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Jesus also started his teaching ministry in the same way. From that time, we read in Matthew 4, 17, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, in Luke's gospel, we're told that John the Baptist also taught a great deal of ethics. He instructed tax collectors to only collect the appropriate amount. Uh, he instructed those with great resources to be equitable and generous. He instructed uh, soldiers to treat people justly. But those ethical teachings were not the crux of his message. The crux of John's message was this idea of repentance because the kingdom of God was near. Now, when we think of the word repentance, it kind of can be a, a buzzword. It can make bells go off in your mind when you hear it because sometimes we think of drudgery and religion and formalism and rules. But we often misread the word repentance. Sometimes, as many Christians throughout the centuries have done, we unduly give it the idea of some sort of penance or self-punishment. But that's not the idea at all. Uh, biblical repentance, that is, uh, repentance toward God, is a change of mind and heart. It's a change of disposition. Uh, repentance is going from having a view of God that is indifferent at best or hostile at worst to having a view of Him that is accurate and truthful, one that is informed by the Spirit and the truth. It is to see and to take God for who He truly is. It's a fundamental change not a merely outward change. And this is what John was proclaiming in his ministry. And his reasoning for proclaiming repentance was that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is the first mention of the kingdom in Matthew. And i uh, been waiting to get here because it's kind of a theme of Matthew's. Throughout the gospel records, we find hundreds of mentions of the kingdom. Uh, Mark Luke and John usually refer to it as the kingdom of God, while Matthew prefers the kingdom of heaven. Now, some take these different uses as two different things. Some would say that the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom of believers, while the kingdom of heaven was to be an actual kingdom uh, that would have been set up on earth had the Jewish people accepted their Messiah. Uh, I think or separating between those two things is probably a misunderstanding. And if you view it that way, it robs Matthew of the significance in many of his teachings and parables, the teachings and parables of Jesus within it, of the true bearing on our lives even today. The reason I think why Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven over the term kingdom of God is most likely because he's speaking primarily to a Jewish audience a people who rarely pronounced or spoke the name of God at all, 
And oftentimes they would insert stand-ins in their language, one of those being simply heaven. So we think of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. That word kingdom, which is basileia in the original uh, language, is not referring primarily to a place like a land or a palace. It really refers to the kingship or the rulership of God. That is, uh, the kingdom of God is the place where God is king. And the citizens of the kingdom are those who are under his rule. Now that's a very simple way of viewing it. But think about John's message in this way. When he proclaimed that the kingdom was near or at hand, right here, he was saying, God is the king and you must come to terms with that. By preaching repentance, he was telling religious people, some even very devout, that their mere religion was incomplete. They needed to repent, to have a change of heart, of disposition, to come to terms with God, with who He is and what He was doing. And He was about to do something very big in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was always pointing outside of Him to someone else. And Matthew tells us that he fulfilled the prophecy that comes out of Isaiah 40, the voice in the wilderness that was crying, prepare the way of the Lord. The fact that John was preaching in the wilderness fulfills this in a geographic sense, yes, but in a truer sense, think of it. God's people were in a wilderness of waiting. God's people had waited oftentimes in their experience. God's people had waited 40 years in the wilderness to cross over the Jordan River as we studied in Sunday school this morning. God's people waited at times before for hundreds of years from deliverance out of slavery. God's people now had waited for 400 years again to hear another word from the Lord. They were in essence wandering, looking for the promise to be fulfilled, looking for the Lord to speak again. And John came as that voice in this wilderness of waiting and told them, the kingdom is here. John told of a time that the leadership that they had been looking for in their wandering, he points to the Messiah, Lord Jesus Christ, and says, here he is. Here he is. So that's a message of preparation. Secondly, we see a response of recognition. Now Matthew gives us some more details about John's attire and uh, his demeanor. He was a sight to behold, if we can put it that way. Here is this man, probably standing by the traveled road, uh, by the river, telling people who come by to repent, for God's kingship is drawing near. We're told in Scripture that he wore uh, camel's hair and he wore a leather girdle. Uh, now, this would have conjured a clear image in people's mind, at least people who knew uh, their Old Testament. We look at 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. Speaking of Elijah, they said, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist and said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Uh, there's a reason why John dressed this way. It was a kind of a wilderness prophet's dress, and the people would have picked up on that. Now, Matthew also includes every young boy's favorite detail uh, that John ate locusts. 
Now, I think I've heard back and forth on that fact more than any other statement in the Bible. Uh, some people like to say, well, the locust was, was just a fruit of a tree, like a little fig or something like that. But as far as I can tell, these were real locusts. And uh, that's not unheard of because locusts were actually one of the only permitted insect foods in the Old Testament law. So there's provision for John to eat these things. And further, it was kind of a normal practice for those who dwelled in the wilderness area to catch locusts, to dry them in the sun, drizzled in honey, and they had a little protein bar. So John was kind of, you know, he was living off the land, uh, but it was real locusts he was eating. Uh, now, I'm not going to try that snack. Um, even if one of you make it for me, I will refuse. So I'm just going to say that now. Uh, but locusts and wild honey was his food. Uh, it was kind of in keeping with his Nazarite-like living. And it was a self-sustainable food source. Uh, just a little bit of application we can draw from that is that John's life wasn't centered around his cuisine or his clothing. It was all centered around his proclamation, his preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. We're told earlier, or in another place in Scripture, that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth. And that fact is evidenced in the fact that people were coming from everywhere to hear John's message. Not only did the normal travelers across the Jordan River see him and hear him and stop and listen to him, but we're told that people from all throughout Judea came to be baptized by him. And they confessed their sins. Now, John's baptism, uh, it's kind of maybe a precursor uh, to Christian baptism, what we practice today, uh, but it's, it's not really the same thing. John's baptism uh, belongs to the Old Testament period um, as Jesus' ministry of the gospel had not yet started. And there was a kind of baptism in the Old Testament called proselyte baptism where Gentiles could go through this baptismal cleansing in order to be brought into Jewish life. There was also a group in John's day called the Essenes. They also kind of dwelled in the wilderness. Uh, they practiced ritual cleansings like baptism as well. So people had heard of these kind of things. But John's baptism really is kind of a baptism of identification. And that's the way that it pictures Christian baptism. Now, Christian baptism today, ordained by Jesus Christ and carried out through by the church, it's, it's Trinitarian. We baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It pictures the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and it publicly identifies the person with the gospel in that regard. Well, John's baptism publicly identified a person with their repentance, an outward sign of their fundamental inward change toward God. We're told that the people being baptized were confessing their sins. The word confess means simply to agree or to say the same thing. So we can say that when they heard John's preaching, when the Holy Spirit working through John brought this message, they realized that even in their formal religion, they were spiritually bankrupt. And they came to repentance because the kingship of God was coming to bear on their life. Now, we don't know how many people came and listened to John and how many people came to repentance, but it seems to be many. Uh, let me just say this. John was an incredible man. Uh, even Jesus said that, 
at a later place. And probably, if he had not been overshadowed by the ministry and life of Jesus, then he would have gone down in history as of the same significance of Elijah or Isaiah or Jeremiah. He was a real prophet sent from God. But he himself said that he was not the main focus. He was not the one. He was only pointing to the one. Pointing to the one. Thirdly, we see a word against assumption. A word against assumption. As we come down to verse number 7, it says, He saw many of the Pharisees uh, and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, there were many true followers of John, many of which seems like swiftly or would swiftly and willingly turn to Jesus, the Messiah, when he became prominent. But there were also those who came with insincere hearts and insincere motives to John's baptism. And we read about those when we read of these ones, the scribes and the Pharisees who came to John's baptism. And when they come, the way that he speaks to them gives us an indication about the fact that apparently the Spirit revealed to him that these were not simply coming like the rest to be repentant. They were coming maybe just to check things out and bring a word back to the authorities. Now the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the ruling classes of the, religions of Jude, or the religion of Judaism in that day. Matthew lumps them together here. Uh, they weren't really working together probably. Uh, maybe they didn't come at the same time. But he does note that both groups do come to see John's baptism. The Pharisees, on one hand, were the ultra-conservative. Uh, they were the devout, to the letter, uh, religious leaders. Their traditions had gone so far beyond the teaching of the Old Testament that they had created thousands of additional regulations in order to safeguard themselves in keeping of the law. As we will see later on in Matthew, Jesus had no patience for these men. He identified them as spiritually bankrupt, as manipulative, fake, and idolatrous. In one place, he even called them whitewashed tombs, that is, outwardly clean and pure, but dead, decaying on the inside. Now, the Sadducees, while still elite, uh, they were somewhat different. Uh, they took advantage of the, uh, the business side of Judaism in that day. Uh, interestingly, they rejected much of the teaching of what the Pharisees touted. They rejected the resurrection of the dead, for instance. Uh, they rejected the, the oral tradition that the Pharisees lived by. And they were almost anti-spiritual at some times, yet they still were identified as those guilty of turning true religion 
into a false religion. When Jesus cleansed the temple, uh, for one instance, and he accused the guilty parties of turning the house of God into a den of thieves, uh, the Sadducees would have been largely responsible for the lucrative temple business that was taking place there that Jesus repudiated. So as these men came, the Pharisees on one hand, the Sadducees on the other, they came to John, and when he saw them, he had stern words for them. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, for about half a second, I thought it would have been funny to name the sermon that this morning, but I figured it may not come across uh, very well, so I opted out of that. And, uh, you know, we could not get away with maybe John's prophetic language, but he, as a prophet of God filled with the Spirit, uh, he did get away with it, and he was right. A brood of vipers, that is literally the offspring or the, the generation of vipers. Now, the image here of snakes fleeing from the wrath, you can picture snakes wriggling their way across uh, the desert from a wilderness fire. John was not being diplomatic with his language. He was being vivid on purpose. It seems that they weren't actually coming to be baptized. They were just coming to see the baptism. In a very prophetic way, John examines the men and he gives them this command. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now what can we learn from that statement? The first thing is, outward good works are not synonymous with true repentance by themselves. Repentance itself is not a work. It's not the keeping of a list of obligations. If it had been that, then the Pharisees would have had it nailed down. Repentance, again, is a fundamental change of mind and heart, a change of disposition, a change of nature. It's not merely outward and formal, but it does affect the outward drastically. The second thing we can learn from John saying this to these men is that someone can be full of strict obedience to the letter of the law, a perfect adherent to formal religion, without having any real heart change, any real repentance. These warnings to these men, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath of come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. These warnings flow into John's continued teaching as he preempts what their response would be. Uh, knowing their attitude and their hearts, really, the, the elite attitude of these classes of men, knowing their high view of their own righteousness, he strikes at the very heart of their religious assumptions and says, don't think that your pedigree has anything to do with your true spiritual life. He says, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now, if they had said that, if, if they had been allowed to say that before John preempted them, that would have been a tie back to the origins of Judaism, a tie back to the originator, the first patriarch, the one that God called out of Ur. It would have been akin to saying, I am a true Israelite. Of course, I'm in good standing with God. Now, we should note that the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not represent all the citizens of Judea in that day. 
Not every practicing Jew was was self-deceived and self-righteous like these men were. But the problem was their influence was strong. Jesus condemns them on more than one occasion for trying to make proselytes and converts out of men. But really, they were killing them spiritually. Much of the New Testament is devoted to repudiating this kind of religious legalism. John points to the rocks by the river as he was standing there in baptism, and he says, you think you're something because of your heritage? If God wanted to, he could bring children for Abraham out of these rocks. The pedigree of being a seed of Abraham couldn't save them from the wrath of God. Their strict outward adherence to moral standards could not save them. John says to them in kind of a parabolic sense, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. He he brackets this by going back to the idea of fruit. He first told them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, but then he warned them, for those in which there is no fruit, you're like a tree which is to be cut down for firewood. If there is no spiritual life, no true repentance, no inward reality, then all of the religion in the world wouldn't save them. And I say this in our midst today, that we can never base our standing before God or our entrance into his kingdom on our family heritage or our religious conformity. Your standing before God can't borrow from your mother's relationship with Jesus. Uh, Your standing before God cannot ride on the coattails of your relative. Your standing before God cannot be propped up by perfect church attendance. John and Jesus both preached the message, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And if you have never come to a place where your mind and your heart have been fundamentally changed to view and to take Jesus for who he truly is, and according to Scripture, you're still in your sins. I want to read from 1 Peter along these lines. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, that's Jesus, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But, Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. John says that God is able to raise up, even from these stones, children for Abraham. Brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in Christ, you are one of those stones that Peter calls living stones, stones that make up the household of God. We are members of God's kingdom, subjects and citizens in the truest sense. We are living stones made alive by the stone that the builders rejected, Jesus Christ. Once we were not a people and had not received mercy, even in our religion, but now we have received mercy and have been made a people through Christ. John's warning to these men was to make no assumptions. Don't base your eternal life on assumptions. You can't ride to heaven on the coattails of someone else's religion, and you can't propel your way there by merely outward good works. The call is to repent and believe the gospel of Christ. Lastly, we see a promise and a warning. John ends his little mini-sermon here to the Pharisees and Sadducees by telling them that there is something of eternal significance coming, uh, and rather not just something, but someone. He says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The promise is that the greater one is coming. And as we will see the next time we are in Matthew, that greater one was even nearby, about to walk onto the scene. And that promise is that greater one would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John looks forward to the start of Jesus' ministry, and he says, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. Uh, Taking off somebody's sandals was a low task. It was a menial task of a servant. It would have been a humbling task. John says, compared to Jesus, I'm not even worthy to do that for him. Now, as John looks forward at Jesus' ministry as Messiah, he primarily sees the judgment aspect of Jesus' coming. Now, we know that Jesus is reserving that judgment for his second coming. Uh, but in reality, Jesus' first coming was a judgment. What do I mean by that? Jesus drew a line in the sand. All those who repent and follow Jesus are part of his kingdom, baptized with the Holy Spirit, as John puts it, identified with and made new by the King. But those who reject will be cast out to make room for the wheat and will be as the chaff burned in the fire. Yes, Jesus' coming, although one of peace and teaching primarily, ended with his sacrifice for sins, his coming is a judgment because it is still a call for repentance, a change of heart and mind, a transformation, truly and inwardly, of the whole life before God. John's work as a forerunner in that day points to our ministry of reconciliation in this day 
where we proclaim the gospel of Christ and say, He is the King. You must come to terms with that. Paul tells us in Philippians that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord that John prepared the way for. And He is the Lord that we proclaim today. He is the Lord of creation, the King of kings. He is reigning even now, and you must come to terms with Him. The kingship of Jesus Christ, the kingship of God, is an unavoidable fact. Everyone will come to know that fact, either in their living or in their dying. And John's ministry shows us that each of us must personally come to terms with the kingship of God.